as members of my team at work would tune in tonight. That would be interesting. Welcome to episode number 486 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I am Carlos, and in this week's packed show, uh, we have got, and if I can bring up the screen, I'll be even better to see, we have got uh, loads of great news. We haven't got any caption this this week, uh, but we have got news on Ural Airlines uh, giving up on flying its Airbus out of the farmer's field. BA pilot is kidnapped on a layover and in the military news this week NASA inches closer to developing a commercially viable supersonic transport and there's some battlefield victories in the Ukraine as well so joining me this week on the show is not Matt Smith he's not here uh, no he's he couldn't join us this week he's not here but uh, joining me uh, here across the pond over in the US of A is someone who, when he flies his jet, has to has his he has to have his heating on full blast because he's so damn cool. It is, of course, Armando. It's like Ron Burgundy. I always wonder if Carlos is actually going to read the introduction, uh, but I can see that you just glossed right over me wanting to be like our superstar guest host. Hello, everyone. <laughs> How are you? Uh, all well here in North Carolina, a little little cold like it is everywhere else in the world. I think uh, everybody's in the chat room talking about how cold it is wherever they live. Um, but uh, ready to go this week. So what's been up to uh, what's been up to in the life of Armando this week then? Uh, not much, just uh, all domestic engineer type uh, work, uh, taking care of the household. A little bit of flying. I think you saw the video. I took the uh, the biplane up. A little, little cold, but still fun to fly oh it's good to see you as always armando uh, and uh, nev is not with us this week he is uh, he's over your neck of the woods i think armando he's over in portland i think still it's portland yeah yeah portland it's the other side of the continent but yeah closer closer to me i guess than he is to you <laughs> yeah but uh, we have got a very special guest host on this evening. And uh, it is of someone who uh, appears on the show quite frequently, actually, now. We seem to have stolen him from his own podcast, which is uh, good, good news for us, I suppose. But uh, it gives me great pleasure to welcome onto the show, back into the seat, the guest host seat, is, of course, Matt Clutterbuck from the A320 podcast. Hi, yeah. Thanks very much. Always a pleasure to be on. And, uh, yeah. Good to have you all uh, back on again. And interesting being on a Wednesday makes it much easier uh, for me, certainly, to get on. So, yeah, looking forward to the show. Yes, we've got a few uh, stories from, uh, well, from the realms of Airbus this week. So you'll be pleased to know, Matt. So at least you can... Good. Uh, you can pass some judgments on there. Going to say hello to everyone who's joined us in the YouTube chat room tonight. Going to look through the list there. Let's have a look who's in there. Start from the top. 
Uh, Richard Adams, he was in there nice and early tonight. Hello to you, Richard. Lee Davies is in there, pint in hand. Well done, Lee. Uh, we've got Mazus, our local listener, Mazus, is in there. Good to see you, Mazus. Uh, Richard E. Flag is in there. Good to see you as well. Bill, hello, Bill. Uh, Captain Cruz is also in there. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the comment, Captain Cruz. Yes, I'm in charge of the studio this week. What could go wrong, possibly? Uh, Tanya's in there as well. Hello to you, Tanya. Uh, our main man, Uncle Micah, is also in there. Masha, hope you're well, Masha. Uh, Hobby Time, hello to you as well. Just scroll down the list here. Uh, make sure Sturman, hello Sturman, good to see you as well this week. He's back in there. Alan, hello to you, Alan, good to see you as well. Hope you're warm, Alan, because it's blooming cold here where we are. Uh, Nana's also in there. Uh, she's in there. Nana Cruz, good evening to you. I think she's in a in a in a posh hotel somewhere here in the UK, living living life's eternal dream. I think. Uh, we've got, uh, let me just scroll down, Plane Safety Podcast. Hello to you, Pip. He's in there this week. Good to see you, Pip. Uh, Oscar. Hello, Oscar. We've not seen Oscar for ages. Hello, Oscar. Hope you're well. Not seen you in a chat room for ages. Uh, don't forget, if you're listening to us in the world of uh, glorious uh, audio, don't forget we are live every uh well, every uh, Wednesday now on uh, YouTube, seven o'clock here. Uh, don't forget if you if you can find us on YouTube, you shouldn't be able to. Uh, you should be able to find us. Plain Talking UK. Click the subscribe and bell icon to be notified when we're live and broadcasting episodes, like we are doing right now. So, loads of commercial news to get through this week. Uh, so, if all the team are ready, let's go. makes me wonder whether we're going to have a story or a week where we don't have stories like this this is coming to us from toronto uh city.ca an air canada passenger injured after opening cabin door before departure falling out of the aircraft at pearson airport so an air canada flight from toronto to dubai was delayed after a passenger opened the cabin door of the boeing 777 and fell onto the tarmac at toronto pearson international airport sustaining well, injuries. The incident occurred on Monday evening as the man, who was in a state of crisis, according to the police, boarded the uh, aircraft normally, but instead of taking his seat, opened the cabin door opposite to where he had boarded, uh, leading to a fall and minor injuries. He was taken into custody and received treatment at a local hospital. The flight carrying 319 customers was delayed nearly six hours, departing early Tuesday morning, and Air Canada confirmed that standard procedures were followed and is reviewing the incident, while Greater Toronto Airport's Authority is working with officials to address the situation hmm so he walks in through it comes in through the door and then what happens here Armando well I feel like I, I don't know what kind of state of crisis he was in but um, it, it's always interesting to me that this continues to happen but there's really not much you can do about it right so you can't lock the doors when the aircraft is because that's a safety issue. Even though they're not armed, the slides aren't armed when you're just parked at the gate. Um, I think people see the same, you know, I think the Airbus has a 
a green and yellow paddle or something like that, where where there's a little indicator. Maybe it's different airline by airline, but yeah. So maybe it's green and red. But I think people just start, you know, they see something, they want to move it, and and they have, you know, most. I think most people don't have any idea what's going to happen uh, when they do that. Uh, we we when I was flying charter, I actually had a passenger reach for the cargo door exit uh, while I was taxiing. Um, luckily, it didn't it didn't open or anything like that. But uh, just out of curiosity, I think they were just they removed the cover, <laughs> and right behind the cover, there is the lever. And um, luckily, on that airplane, there is a, a an extra safety latch. But he moved it just enough where we got an indication up front <laughs> that uh, there was an open door. So obviously we had to stop taxi and everything. And uh, we, one of us got out and out of the seat, I mean, and, and went back there. And he he looked, he had a guilty look. He, he knew exactly what he would, what he had done and uh, said, oh, I was just messing with it. It's like, well, okay, well, now, now we got to shut down and verify that everything is, is safe uh, before we continue on. So... You've had this yeah. issue with uh, with you, Andy. Uh, Andy, with you, Matt, on the oh. uh, aircraft that you fly on. Obviously, you're obviously on a, on a commercial airline. You've got a lot of passengers sitting behind you, but I'd imagine that you're quite um, busy. I would say at the beginning of the flight, you know, doing things to sort of keep in touch with who's coming on and off. Yeah, I mean, during boarding, obviously, we don't have particularly long boarding times, so we're quite separated. Uh, other than you know, the odd person might stick their head in or That's say me. something we sometimes hear a little bit from behind but yeah generally we're we don't have much to do with boarding um i do have one of my friends had it actually where um they were boarding and you know if you're in the overwings the cabin crew will come and brief the overwing passengers on how to use the overwing exits and they said this as the, one of the passengers and then after they walked away they thought okay so how do i do this and then they practiced and pulled the handle and fired the over over wing slide so that flight was cancelled uh, so that's the only thing that i know so yeah. it's quite interesting um am i right in thinking, matt that that all the doors on the oh well obviously you fly the airbus but am i right in thinking that all the doors including the the uh, the overwing exit doors emergency doors every single door has got like an uh, um you know, like a micro switch or a, a trigger that if it opens, that you get a warning on the flight deck. Correct. In fact, the overwing ones, we're told even if you take the cover off, so you don't actually have to open the door, we get the warning with the cover coming off. Um, so we, we would know before that point. Yeah. Mm. When it, was it last week that we had a story about uh, a BA crew while they were taxiing? The yeah. one crew member was, was demonstrating to the other one that how it works and they inadvertently deployed the slide while taxing. Um, Captain Cruz had a question uh, in the chat room and the answer is no, the slides are not usually armed while the aircraft is being serviced. Um, I think over there in Europe, it is much more common to board passengers from the front and the back. That's rarely, I know very few airlines, very few airports here in the US that don't board through a jetway um, here at my local airport, Concord, North Carolina, Allegiant and um, Sun Country fly in there. They do not have a jetway there. So they do board via stairs, via the front and the back, a la European way. Um, but I think the other side of the airplane, the right side of the airplane, 
is uh, is also disarmed because that's where the, all the caterers and servicing is happening. So, so while we are at the stand, we don't usually arm the doors. And of course, it'd be a massive risk to any ground personnel should a, a slide be inadvertently deployed. We actually um, had a long time ago, probably 10, 15 years ago, had an issue where the cabin crew is so drilled into not accidentally opening the door when it's armed and firing off the slide. They're so paranoid about it. They actually had a real evacuation and disarmed the slide because they're so used to doing it. They're relatively new and they had to stop everyone getting off, close the door, arm it, and then open the door again to get the slide. So sometimes you can have it the other way. I find the most fascinating thing about this story is how they said they only had minor injuries. I mean, the 737 is much lower than the 320. They're only about two and a half meters high. We're about three and a half meters high for the bottom of the door on the 320. But the 777 is like five, five plus meters high. It's a long way to fall with minor injuries onto tarmac. Surprised they weren't more seriously injured, to be honest. Maybe it's like one of those things that will, when people are uh, driving drunk and they get into a car accident, it's it's always the the drunk person that survives because they're relaxed or something yeah. like that. I don't know. Yeah, that's true. I don't know, uh, Matt. I think actually you've got the next story. I have yes. Uh, this one will uh, resonate with many. I think so. Uh, this one is from simpleflying.com, and it says why Gatwick Airport has hiked its passenger drop-off charge. So London Gatwick Airport has raised its terminal drop-off fee from £5 to £6, stirring frustration among users who learned of the hike via the airport's official social media channel. In response to passenger concerns and to clarify the rationale behind the fee increase, London Gatwick said that the decision was taken to reduce congestion at the airport. According to the airport, the increased fee would allow it to reinvest in sustainable transport and encourage more passengers and staff to use public transport to reach the airport. So hopefully everyone's uh, concerns have been uh, addressed hearing that. Uh, this sort of thing annoys me when they say it's to um, make people use more public transport. It's like if you go to Thorpe Park or one of the theme parks around the UK, you can't get to it really other than by car, yet they charge you for parking, suggesting to take public transport. It's almost impossible to get there by public transport. Okay. Um, I mean, with Gatwick, yeah, if you live in London, great, you can get the train out of London, but it's not very easy to get to Gatwick uh, by public transport. From I, actually, else. I actually have a question. How do they enforce this? How do they charge you for doing this? I am yeah, number plate recognition. You have to go yeah. online and then you get a fine if you don't do it. So, so yeah, you have to do it beforehand? Uh, you can do it after, but I think normally by midnight that night or something or the next night. Yeah, I know yeah. back back in my previous job when, um, when I was doing driving the truck and I had a couple of jobs where I was delivering to Heathrow Terminal 3 and they've got a big drop-off point outside there. You've probably seen it, Matt at uh, T3 that were next door where the Virgin uh, building is and there's a big drop-off point there and there's a massive sign billboard that says register your vehicle online now if you're dropping someone only if you're dropping someone off if you're dropping so you need to register your vehicle and pay I think I forget what it is now pay a few pence but anyway but um, 
I got flagged. Lovely full HD colour picture came through to my boss a few weeks later with a picture of my truck with all the lights on and everything. Um, but uh, we questioned it in the end because we were a contractor, obviously dropping materials off, and they they quashed it in the end, so we didn't have to pay. But um, it does catch a lot of people out who don't pay that fee to drop off at the airport at T3. And as, as like Matt said, you know, they've got the AMPR system there, catches your registration, then you get a nice little picture of yourself yeah. in, the, uh, in the post. Yeah, and it goes on to say this move places Gatwick among other London airports that also charge for drop-offs. London Heathrow, £5 for any drop-off at Terminal 4 Courts. London Luton, £5 for 10 minutes at Priority Drop-Off Zone. And London Stansted, which is the most expensive, £7 uh, for 15 minutes at the Express Set-Down Zone. Unlike its peers, however, London City Airport does not charge a drop-off fee, which is ironic because that's the one that's easiest to get to with public transport. Uh, Gatwick, which claims to be Europe's busiest single runway airport and is second only to Heathrow in UK passenger capacity, handled 32.9 million passengers in 2022, down from its pre-pandemic numbers. The airport is also seeking to boost its capacity by 60%, aiming to meet anticipated air travel growth. So, I mean, really, it's just another revenue stream, isn't it? It's a, effectively another um, air passenger duty tax on the on the passengers. That's one of the nice I things it. I think with you in, in in the US, Armando. When you dropped me off at Charlotte, when I stayed with you last year, you know, you you, you dropped me off literally right outside the um, departures um, area through the door, straight there. And oh yeah, you didn't you didn't pay <clears throat> ten, fifteen, twenty dollars, did you? No, no, this is yet another one of those things that doesn't exist here in the US. I'm sure they get their money somehow. It's probably built into the ticket as a facility fee or something like that. The only airport that I know that charges anything for going onto the property is DFW Airport. And they've got these sort of uh, toll gates at the north end and the south end, which are the only ways to get onto the airport property. And I think it's uh, $2.00 two US dollars at DFW if uh, you drop somebody off in a green zone. It's like the beginning of Airplane, the movie, right? Um, and I think uh, the highest is something like four, $9 or something like that if if you're there for 30 minutes or something like that. Mm -hmm. But that's the only place that I know of, at least in the US, that that does anything like this. Um, but I think most other airports just working into the the, the tickets somehow. So moving on to the next story, um, coming from aerotime.aero. Uh, we're going back to a story that we've, we've we've covered a few times on the show, actually. This is that Ural Airlines A320 that um, I was so hoping they were going to fly this out of there. Um, so it's a developing story this week. And so it's uh, on September the 12th last year. Remember, uh, the Ural Airlines pilot was forced to land his A320 into a Russian wheat field after the crew became concerned the aircraft would not make it to Novos... Oh, God, here we go. Matt, you're probably better at this than me. Novo, Novo, you've probably thrown, flown in here at some point in your in your previous uh, past. We'll go Novosibirsk. Thank uh, you. Guess it's not Due to lack of fuel, 
The story of the troubled A320 jet captured the global media's attention as people speculated whether the aircraft would be flown out of the field or be cut up and transported away. Uh, to this day, the Ural Airlines plane remained in the field just outside that particular place in southern Siberia, protected by 24-hour private security and a fenced-off area. However, on January the 9th uh, this year, 2024, a clearer insight into the true nature of the plane's immediate future emerged following comments by the head of the Yubininsky district in Russia, Oleg Konyuk. According to the region's head, Ural Airlines entered into a lease agreement with the field's owner to rent the field where the jets uh, is has been lying for a year, and this could be extended uh, for even longer. Uh, according to uh, KP Novo that word. Uh, the agreement currently runs until September this year and saw the airline paying over $11,000. So that all seemed like the future of the aircraft that seemed a reasonably long term, but then this happened. So a Ural Airlines, uh, the aircraft, the 320, and a Russian aviation telegram channel said, after a thorough evaluation of the aircraft, the decision, uh, decision has been made to dismantle the aircraft for parts and not attempt to fly the A320 out of the field, as was previously proposed. <laughs> Matt's gutted about that. Yeah, the Telegram channel reported on January the 10th uh, this year that the financial restraints meant any further attempts to rescue the aircraft intact had been exhausted. All assets on the Ural Airlines aircraft that can be reused in the future will be removed, transported from the field. There's been no official statement by Ural Airlines. And when approached the, by the Russian website 66RU, the airline said that no decisions will be made until the end of the investigation. The fate of the aircraft reportedly hinged on negotiations with the insurance firm, uh, given the depth of spare parts or the lack of spare parts available for Russian Airlines due to the economic sanctions scrapping the A320 may not be such a big loss for Ural. The aircraft is powered by two CFM56 engines which will be the most valuable parts of the aircraft. Uh, Romeo, Romeo Alpha 73805 began life under Air Arabia, flying for the airline for almost a decade, including a short spell at subsidiary Air Arabia Maroc. It joined Ural Airlines back in May 2013 and was reconfigured with a two-class cabin, seating 12 in business and 144 passengers in economy. Now, uh, there's pictures that uh, I think we've got a picture on here somewhere on the uh, on the playout folder here of the aircraft, but it has um, the pictures we've got here is seeing the nose um, area of the, uh, the fuselage cut off, and one of the wings has also been cut off. But Matt, I think uh, you're you're slightly uh, sort of gutted that you weren't going to be able to see this master of the skies ascend from the field. Hmm certainly had raised a lot of eyebrows in the industry when they were talking about flying this aircraft out um i think you don't need to be a specialist on any aircraft type to to know that it was going to certainly be an interesting undertaking um i mean the length of runway or field that you would need to take off in in something like that even with it frozen is massive i mean you're gonna need, we're talking like probably a couple of miles you're going to need to to get an aircraft like that out so yeah i'm not sure what the surrounding area was like but i mean the list of issues is i mean you could write a book on reasons not to do that <laughs> uh ingesting 
uh, foreign object damage, FOD, as we call it, uh, debris, sucking in things, clearing the area. You know, I mean, it's just so many things that could go wrong with that. And as you say, they can't get the spares, but um, they're probably, yeah, going to cut it up, use the parts that they need. I think, I think they've probably made the safest and wisest choice. And I would imagine this has probably been dictated by the insurance companies <laughs> rather than uh, actually the airline deciding not to do it. Sorry, Mal. I'm just reading the comment from Richard Adams in the chat room. <laughs> Is that uh, me standing by the cockpit with a disc cutter? <laughs> I mean, t let's be honest here, right? If, if Ural Airlines want to make a few quid, this would be the aircraft to, to make plane tags from. Yeah. You know, the, pff, the 320 that landed in a, in a cornfield. Yeah. Any thoughts, Armando, before we move on? Um, well, I, you know, our outstanding show producers have thrown a lot of notes in there, a lot of information. I didn't actually know this until they put this little nugget in there that I do remember that there was a lot of information that came out initially about this. And it seemed like the whole story was out fairly quickly, just in the in the few weeks or maybe even a month after the incident, where it, it almost seemed, seemed like we knew exactly what happened and the investigation was done. Well, apparently that's not the case and new information came to light. Uh, the pilots were asked to resign from the company. They refused to do so. Um, and I guess they're reopening the investigation as to what actually happened leading to this aircraft landing there. Um, I don't have a dog in the fight in the Boeing Airbus, uh, you know, uh, rivalry. But you got to admit, you're, we're seeing a lot of between this airplane and, and Cactus 1549 that landed in the Hudson it, you got to admit, it's, uh, you know, in the A350 in Japan that we're about to talk about, Airbus is, is puts together a pretty good product, don't they? That these aircraft are, are making these amazing landings um, that are survivable. Um, did, that, did that hurt Carlos to hear that? Yes, that's right. Uh, <laughs> they, oh my gosh, they did take off a 737 did, from yeah, the Mississippi River... Yeah, um, I I had the story in the in the catacombs of my mind. Um, I think there was a a really good documentary done by the Smithsonian Channel. I think on it. Correct. Um, yeah, that was a really unique. I mean, the, aviation is replete with these amazing feats all the way back to the beginning, right? Um, but it's especially unique and special and 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 captivating when you're when you have airliners this size, right? The the that aircraft, the Gimli glider, and like all these other, you know, these aircraft doing amazing things that you would expect a general aviation aircraft to do, but airliners um, are accomplishing them. So, pretty cool. I'm a, I got, I got an Airbus luggage tag somewhere. Maybe I'll just throw that on to express my, my, uh, my fandom of, <laughs> of Airbus. Oh, it's dear. a good club to be in. Yeah, well, I'm just a, I'm just a wannabe. I'm just a little corporate guy, so maybe it's a, a dream of mine. Now, sticking with um, Airbus for the next story, Matt, do you want to take this next one? This is all about uh, that uh, incident a few weeks back. Yeah, sure. Threw that curveball at me, didn't you? I know. Um, yeah, so this is, as uh, Armando uh, alluded to, about the Japan Airlines' plan to recover the A350 wreckage for aviation safety exhibition 
which is really interesting story actually so um JL has begun considering preserving the remains of its aircraft involved in the accident, which has since been removed from the side of runway 16 left and 34 right, which has now reopened. On January 5th, 2024, three days following the accident, investigators from Japan's Transport Safety Board, the JTSB, began working their way through the wreckage before excavators removed the remains of the A350 and re relocated it to a secure JAL hangar located elsewhere on the airfield for further inspection, following a maintenance order issued by the JTSB. JAL is considering exhibiting the remains for both company employees and also the general public to convey lessons learned from the incident to improve aviation safety overall. While little remains of the fuselage of the JAL aircraft which caught fire upon landing following the collision, parts of the aircraft's wing, vertical stabiliser and engines remain. JAL considers the wreckage of its A350 jet to be a valuable object in conveying the lessons of air safety and will consult with the Land, Infrastructure, Transport and Tourism Ministry of Japan, the engine manufacturer Rolls-Royce and other stakeholders regarding the preservation of the remains, while also monitoring the progress of the investigation into the accident. The company's employee training facility, known as the JAL Safety Promotion Centre, displays various articles and exhibits that are related to aviation safety matters. One such display preserves the remains of part of the fuselage from the JAL Boeing 747SR that was involved in an accident in August 1985 when the aircraft suffered an explosive decompression and broke apart mid-air, killing all 520 passengers and crew on board. The exhibit also features other parts of the aircraft remains, as well as various passenger belongings that were recovered from the crash site scene. The JAL Safety Promotion Centre is open to the public five days a week, Monday to Friday, and offers guided tours of the exhibits. Advance reservations are required, so if ever you're down that way, it could be something that's well worth looking into. And actually, my personal opinion is I think it would be a very good exhibition to take on tour maybe uh in europe uh, i assume it's the same in the, the us armando but it would be nice to have some of our passengers see how quickly an airplane ends up looking like that and how everyone survives when you don't take your hand luggage with you yeah as i was listening to last week's episode i was kind of wondering this this exact thing is how do you take this experience and promote it to the public without, you know, alarming or making flying seem more dangerous than it really is. Um, I didn't really come up with anything because, you know, you could, you could somehow work it into the safety demonstrations. Maybe that's not the right place. You, I mean, I'm sure we're going to see plenty of, of documentaries on this, but the general public doesn't watch that. So how do you, how do you convey this message to the general mm. traveling public? Maybe maybe a a safety display at airports or something yeah. like that, you know? Or maybe know. some sort of uh national funded video that or piece of uh video that goes on, you know, commercial breaks, uh could be, you know, paid promotion on YouTube that comes up on videos when people are looking at stuff or something like that. Airlines could have it on their websites. It would be interesting to see if that had any effect because we've seen a few incidents now of people getting off 
an evacuation with all their hand, even, even you know, trolley cases and things like that. A yeah. few. <laughs> I think you're giving us credit. I, I think it's more than some things. It's most nowadays. And everybody yeah. pulls out their phone and takes out their carry-on luggage and yeah. gets out of the airplane. Um, the uh, next story I saw <laughs> a couple of days ago when it when it came out, and it just reminded me of of us traveling in the military. This it's from the sun dot co dot uk. A British Airways pilot was kidnapped and tortured as he went shopping on his own uh, on a layover between flights. The first officer was actually approached by a woman in a supermarket car park who asked him to help carry her bags to her car. When they reached the vehicle, a group of men pushed him aside. Uh, he was then driven to a remote area of Johannesburg where he was, quote, badly roughed up. And he eventually handed over thousands and thousands of pounds um, which I know all you rich European airline captains carry around with you. Um, he was obviously unfit to fly the plane back to London uh, from Johannesburg and had a, a replacement come in. Um, that pilot is safe. He's been off work, uh, being supported by colleagues. Um, the airline does ban the staff from being in certain parts of the city, but the crew hotel is in an area called Melrose Arch, which is supposed to be the safest area. Now, when we traveled with the government, we received threat briefings or force protection briefings, as we called us, uh, as we called them, which were um, essentially real-time assessments as to how dangerous it was in both different parts of the city, what the overall national threat level was. Um, I've never flown for an airline internationally. I don't know if that's something that they do. Um, or maybe they publish company-wide bulletins, but regardless of how much you brief people on it, crime is crime. Um, and I, you know, I, I think I've told the story on the show before. Uh, my own father, who was an airline pilot, was um, was robbed at gunpoint when we were growing up in Puerto Rico. Uh, the uniform—they just saw a uniform. Now, I'm, I can't imagine this person was in uniform, but back in, in when this happened to our family, my dad was just coming home from work and they saw the uniform. They see money associated with that. They actually thought he was a soldier, um, which he wasn't. He was in an airline uniform. So um, I think just being different makes people targets of just petty crime. I, you know, Was it targeted because he was a pilot? Probably not. Um, but it's certainly... Um, prudent to do your homework as to where you can go in and out of a city, but nowhere, even in Europe, in the U.S., you're not really 100% safe anywhere. But we always had the buddy system in, in the government and in the, in the Air Force where no one was to be out by themselves. Um, so I don't know, maybe that'll change the airline's um, posture on that. What are you guys' thoughts? Interesting. It'd be interesting to hear if, because it's not clear whether they're advised not to go to that area just because they were in a hotel in that area. I know that some destinations will say don't leave the hotel. So I don't know what the situation is here. Um, but apparently this hotel is in its own security compound. So I have no idea. I'm just guessing here. I would say that they should probably stay in that compound. Maybe this supermarket isn't in that compound. I don't know. 
Yeah, I, I, when we before we started going out to the Middle East, you know, to to Dubai and, and we obviously Oman, we we went back to regularly up until COVID. You know, I'd read things about the Middle East and especially about Oman that were were a little bit dubious. But I'm not going to lie, I, after going out there as many times as we have now, this is I feel the same as I do when I'm at home. I feel just as safe as I do here, walking around the village here. Um, in the middle. Yeah, I think it's important to stress that, Carlos. I mean, you could be in Fort Lauderdale and get get mugged. You could be in yeah. Houston and get mugged. You could be in London and get mugged if you're in the in the wrong area, mm-hmm. or you might be in the right area. And they, you know, criminals know exactly where where the crews hang out. The crews probably mm-hmm. always stay in the you know same place, and um, it's pretty predictable. So moving on to the next story, and uh, Matt, you've got uh, a story about the TSA. thought you were going to take my one in repayment. No. <laughs> uh, TSA detects 6,737 firearms at airport security checkpoints in 2023. <laughs> uh, worth noting, actually, I don't know if it says in here, it's actually only the first three quarters of 2023 because they haven't got the data from the last quarter. Um yeah, in 2023, the TSA intercepted a record 6,737 firearms at airport checkpoints across the US, with about 93% being loaded, a slight decrease in the rate from previous year, but the highest count ever. Uh, the TSA administration administrator, David Pekoski, highlighted the risk posed by these incidents and reiterated the rules against carrying loaded firearms in carry-on luggage. Firearms and ammunition are strictly prohibited in carry-on baggage. Passengers passengers are only allowed to travel with an unloaded firearm and only if they pack it properly in a locked, hard-sided case in their checked luggage and first declare it to the airline at the check-in counter. In 2023, TSA screened more than 858 million individuals, which indicates the agency intercepted 7.8 firearms per million passengers, a drop from 8.6 million in 2022. On average, 18 firearms were stopped daily and passengers found with them faced law enforcement action, fines of up to $15,000 and pre-check revocation and potential enhanced screening. So, yeah, quite an interesting one there. I mean, I guess it's going to be shocking to us in Europe when carrying of firearms is not the norm or certainly not uh, as normal as it is in the US. I have had it myself in the UK, actually, where I used to work in security at Stansted and I had a firearm in someone's bag that came through and... uh, yeah, we stopped in. I stopped it in the X-ray machine, and the police were called. And it was in the bottom of a bag, and the guy didn't realise it was in there, which is interesting on many levels because uh, handguns are illegal, and not being in a locked cabinet is also illegal. So there's multiple things there. His wife was not very impressed, should I say, <laughs> that that one. Um, yeah. So as our resident uh, American, Armando, your what are your thoughts on this? I'm a glasses half full kind of guy. I, you read that story, and that's improvement. Yeah, we went it's going down. down. Well done. Yeah, we went down from 8.6 firearms per million passengers to 7.8. <laughs> so that's that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Keep getting better, America. Uh, no, I. You know, I don't. You. It's such a. It's such a uh, cultural thing here. I can. I can see it happening. Right. I mean, I fly. 
flying on the the private charter side and the corporate side, I actually transport quite a few firearms. Um, when we're doing part part one thirty five charters, it's a little bit different. Where you are, you know, the captain's supposed to know that there is a firearm. We're supposed to check it. Um, sometimes they even give us the key to the locked cases, so we have the keys up front. Um, we do a lot of hunting trips when we're doing uh, charters. Part 91, which is just private owners, none of that, um, <clears throat> it's prudent, but none of that has to happen. And I could see how one of those individuals would have a firearm in their luggage, and then well, for whatever reason, they go travel commercial and, and it ends up there. That That's one of the few scenarios, but I mean, we've heard stories on this show about even pilots carrying firearms mm through security and getting caught when they weren't authorized. We do have a, a federal, um, was it F- federal flight deck security officer? Um, something where you can arm pilots. And, um, but there, there's a couple stories every year about even pilots carrying firearms through security that they didn't know they had. Or at least they say so, so. You guys still have the air marshals over there, Armando. Yeah, I believe yeah. so. Yeah. It's just, if it's hard for us, in Europe or most other parts well to sort of comprehend this because it's so alien to us. But like Amado says, it's probably not surprising given the the fact that, you know, gun laws are very different in the US. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I have I have traveled with firearms. I took a trip to Texas um where, you know, I, I went on the airlines website and I figured out I think I was on United because I was going to uh Houston. Um, I don't have any firearms anymore, but I, I had, you know, two firearms with me and I was going to Texas and, and I followed all the rules, you know, and declared them and did the paperwork online and wrote it in my ticket. And then when I showed up, I showed up an extra hour to the, to the, uh, check-in and did the in-person check-in and declared them and they put the correct tags, they inspected it. So if you go through the process, it's, it's not a big deal. Um, but you know, I could. I can see how it how it happens here. Sticking with you, Armando, for the next story. Uh, saw this one. This one popped up on the news feeds this week. I popped this in uh, to uh, our producer Nick to stick this in on the stories. But yeah, obviously we've had a lot of issues with Boeing, but this is a sort of worrying issue with uh, Airbus. You're right. I take back everything I said about Airbus as being superior. Uh, Lufthansa Cargo has temporarily grounded two of its A321 freighters. Uh, after discovering a fine crack in the fuselage of one aircraft, uh, one of the aircraft, uh, the Delta Alpha Echo Uniform Charlie, was already out of service for routine cracks. I don't know, Matt, is that a thing? Routine cracks. Um, <laughs> and there was another one, uh, Alpha Echo Uniform India. I think that it, had says, been... it says routine checks on my. Oh, sorry. Routine, routine <laughs> checks. <laughs> You are slander, correct. slander. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, uh, producer John is is chatting to us in our ear. That's why the the silence there. As we all giggle. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry, Airbus. No routine cracks. Uh, th- this issue uh, during the checks led to a precautionary inspection of all four cargo converted A three twenty ones. Two have already returned to service. Uh, the passenger versions of the A320s are unaffected, and the carrier anticipates that only minor disruptions to its schedule, right? Because these are uh, 
cargo aircraft. And uh, obviously, they're going to take some repairs. And there's some background information on on the aircraft here. But yeah, you know, I, I, whether it's this, whether it's Boeing, whether it's anything, I always enjoy a story where uh, faults are discovered <laughs> through routine checks. That means the system is working. That means that the safety checks are working. That means that uh, people like Peter that we have on the show are doing their job and discovering um, any potential safety issues because that is the intent of all these inspections uh, to make sure that it's all safe. So, uh, well, it, it, yeah, terrible for the airplanes, but I'm glad that they're actually finding these. Next yeah, uh, put on that the crack was located at the rear fuselage structure of one of the aircraft, which I suppose you've got the, the you've got the pressure bulkhead, haven't you, back there towards the rear of the aircraft? Um, yeah, we don't. It depends on where in the aircraft where the rear being anything you know after yeah. the wings that's inside the pressure vessel it could be outside it could be i don't know anything about the conversion to freighters i don't know if they strengthen the fuselage in different areas i don't know if they modify anything back there i know they modify the front where the cargo door is but um i'm not sure that they really mess too much with the back as far as i know i mean and, and these, totally aren't, these aren't composite either are they that's the no i think these are traditional yeah, build traditional metal composite. aircraft yeah Anything before we move on, uh, Matt? I don't think so, no. <clears throat> um, as Armando said, they're, they're called P2F, passenger to freighter. So Airbus doesn't actually produce any freighter uh, of the A320 family from the factory. They're, they're converted to it. So um, like you say, I think most of the conversions at the front. So it'd be interesting to, to find out what caused the cracks because you would expect if there was an issue with the conversion, it would be towards the front, but... Yeah, interesting. Uh, it says it's only one of the aircraft, though, so um, grounding both of them would make you think that they suspect it might be something to do with it being the freighter conversion. It's just me surmising. So the move uh, next on to this, or next on to the next story. Um, God, I'm a starving, I tell you. Honestly, I should have brought some snacks with me. Uh, this is on airlinelive.net and uh, EasyJet. A 320neo skids off taxiway at Keflavik Airport in Iceland. Uh, EasyJet flight from London Gatwick to Keflavik touched down safely and was able to slow down to taxiing speed. The flight was operated by an Airbus A320neo, a Golf Uniform Juliet Echo Bravo, uh, but then it veered off the taxiway and came to a stop with its nose gear over a grass verge. Passengers were able to get off, but the jet has been taken out of service and a replacement jet was scrambled into action uh, for the time for the return journey while the investigation into the incident has been launched. Um, yeah, I suppose it's one of those things we've, we've had some pretty extreme weather in the UK over the last kind of two months. Well, probably at least two months. We've gone from. Gale, I think we have a have a storm every week here in the UK at the minute. Where wind, you know, winds, uh, and we're now sort of heading into a colder sort of stretch of the uh, of the year, as such, with us in the UK, where temperatures are falling down below the zeros. I know we had issues in Manchester Airport this week with snow. They had the um, snow and the, the machines removing snow from the airports up there and, and up in Scotland, I think, as well. The most of the issues have been up north. But um, I suppose you have to make adjustments as pilots, Matt, when you're 
um, you know, coming into an airport where there is a possibility of, of either wet or icing, you have to make some adjustments to how you land the aircraft. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've flown to Keflavik many times. It's both my favourite and my worst destination to go to. Uh, when the weather's lovely, it's it's great going up there, but it can be challenging. It's nearly always windy up there, and uh, which isn't normally a problem because although it's windy, it's very smooth. So uh, normally that wind hasn't touched anything since it left the US, so it's smooth as anything by the time it gets to Iceland. But it does pose issues with crosswinds, etc., when there's snow on the ground so i mean looking at the pictures i've seen i've seen some aerial ones as well um you can see that it looks extremely icy there um and if you i don't know did you bring up a picture but um picture i've seen uh, where it's parked on the taxiway uh it looks i mean i'm just guessing here but it looks like they've come off the runway and maybe the the main gear slid round as if it's trying to sort of oversteered those of you that into your you're drifting and you're racing uh it looks like a, a bit of an oversteer situation rather than they've taxied off um but you know these these aircraft are heavy you know even at landing when we've burnt off a lot of weight this aircraft's going to be if it's uh you know a neo there i think so it's going to be 65 60 odd tons yeah it's about 60 tons you don't need very much skid or ice to for that to end up off the taxiway the amount of inertia you've got so yeah what are the implications man for sort of braking action and stuff obviously you get the spoilers deploy when you land uh, to slow the aircraft and obviously the thrust reverses on the engine as well i mean do you have do you have to sort of lay off the foot brake as such when you're landing no uh, no so we we would actually put medium auto brake on to reduce the maximum that we can use for auto brake uh, on landing we have anti-skid uh, a bit like abs on a car obviously the spoiler is going to use that and we'd use full reverse um generally the runways are cleared so generally you'll be landing the runway will be wet because it's treated obviously we don't use grit or uh, salt or anything like you'd use on the road you use a chemical um so we can use the full reverse to slow us down generally i'm sure mando would say the same the taxiing is the more treacherous part mm -hmm. because the runway is cleared and that is made a, a a positive safe surface you often find that taxiing you have to be very careful taxiing mm -hmm. i've actually had it in keflavik where it was so windy we actually stopped we had the the parking brake on so we were stationary and it was so windy that the wind was just blowing us sideways uh, on the on the ice <laughs> without any control and i just said to the first officer if we get any you know if we end up going towards the terminal our only option is to just shut down the engines and and that so we were doing you know luckily it, it stopped itself but the wind was so strong it was sort of 60 mile an hour winds the uh we were stationary and it was just the wind was strong enough to just blow us over the ice with the with the wheels and the brakes on. Nana so, asks, interesting yeah. up there. So in the chat room, Nana asks an interesting question, actually, which both you guys might be able to answer. Do they investigate all minor incidents? So something like this that is obviously classified as space and minor would be investigated by by the FAA or CAA or uh, yeah. AIOB. Uh, certainly we uh, um maybe not the aib no um but certainly internally um you'd be amazed at the the tiniest little thing there'll be an internal investigation on so 
absolutely yeah and not because it's to get pilots into trouble or anything um it's about learning from it you know what can we learn from this how can we prevent this happening again which is the main thing that everybody wants the outcome to be now, obviously, so, yeah. obviously in the us Armando, you actually have snow actual real snow yeah um well to answer nana's question yeah same here uh whether it's an internal company investigation or the ntsb um or a, a nasa report we have a ability to do a a um basically a report that is um anonymous and and goes so other pilots learn from it and nasa is actually an impartial third party that helps track uh safety issues um especially when the pilots don't have uh when the company doesn't have a a a culture that promotes safety and, and promotes um, uh, pilots, especially in, in private and corporate, where they can uh, raise safety concerns or perhaps question operational um, procedures. So you can always file a NASA report. Um, everything that Matt said about the icing considerations is true. We do have a lot more snow here than in the UK. Uh, the pilots that regularly operate in those conditions are pretty good at it. Um, just like he said, yeah, we like next week I'm taking the Hawker up to Rochester, Minnesota. That's the cold, dark north for us right now. Uh, and while the runway may be clear, yeah, it's taxing. That is is really more dangerous. Um, but just to give you, Carlos, some, some numbers, um, you know that on a dry runway, the Pilatus at full flaps can stop in about 900 feet. Um, on a regular landing, it's about 2,000 feet. When you have a contaminated runway with uh, slush or ice or a poor runway condition code, um, that that almost triples the total landing distance for the aircraft. Um, so even a Pilatus would need 5,000 feet as opposed to 2,000 feet to land on, on a snowed over runway. Um, and then one thing that, that you have to worry about with larger aircraft, multi-engine aircraft, when while you are trying to use the spoilers and, and speed brakes, and reverse, you have to worry about asymmetric thrust and the engine spooling differently uh, as you're trying to throw them into the reverse on a slippery runway. It may actually create even more instability if one of them happens, especially um, on turboprops and things like that, where uh, one side may come up faster than the other one. So it's just tricky. How do you get used to it? And cool. <laughs> suits you down cool. suits you yeah. down the ground Armando as you are cool uh, Matt you've got the next story and it's good news actually it's good news for the airline industry and also for uh, for Airbus yeah I think this is a trend we're seeing globally now isn't it so Emirates airline to recruit 5,000 additional cabin crew in 2024 for its upcoming A350s unbelievable in one year just for 2024 uh, flagship carrier Emirates is taking on an additional 5,000 cabin crew members for its new fleet of Airbus A350s, the airline announced Tuesday. The airline has said the recruitment push is designed primarily for those who will soon or have recently stepped into the world of work and is looking for those with a year or so of hospitality or customer service experience and individuals keen to embark on a career travelling the globe. So obviously looking for uh, young people, it sounds like there. Uh, the new cabin crew equipment drive comes as Emirates begins to take delivery of its eagerly anticipated A350s from mid-year, as well as the Boeing 777 xs starting in 2025. Fingers crossed. Um, 
The airline has 65 A350s and a mix of 205 777-900s and 777-800s in its order book. In the 2022-2023 financial year, the Emirates Group had over 102,000 employees and welcomed 17,160 individuals in various roles. This year, Emirates recruitment team will have open days and assessments in more than 460 cities worldwide. In 2023, Emirates had hired 8,000 recruits as cabin crew after it held recruitment events in 353 cities. In August 2023, the airline's cabin crew numbers crossed the 20,000 mark and are now over 21,500 strong. All cabin crew recruits will go through eight and a half weeks of training at the Emirates facility in Dubai. To be considered, Emirates cabin crew candidates need to be fluent in written and spoken English, additional languages are an advantage, and applicants must be at least 160 centimetres tall and able to reach 212 centimetres high. Applicants must also have at least one year of hospitality or customer service experience. There must be no visible tattoos or in Emirates cabin crew uniform. And then they also gave a list of dates of when they've got the cabin crew open days. So if this sounds like something to you uh, that you'd be interested, then uh, head over to that link. So it's on golfnews.com. Oh, emiratesgroupcareers.com, I'm being told in my ear. So, yeah, uh, we'll put the link there. I Actually, guess, if, you're as in, well. if you're in London tomorrow, London Heathrow tomorrow, they've got one yeah. there tomorrow. Actually, yeah. Emirates have. So, yeah. Fancy that, Carlos? Are you going to be down there? If I had the day off, I'd go just to attend, just, I mean, just to be there. That is phenomenal, isn't it? I mean, twenty-two, nearly 22,000 cabin crew and 5,000 new unbelievable their their rotor their their rotor app or system or computer that does their rotor system must be one hell of a system to to, to sort out all those people yeah <laughs> so armando you've got uh, you've got the last story this week and that's uh, right i'd like to i like to throw in a, a, a corporate story here and there uh, this one is actually from the National Business Aviation Association or NBAA.org. Um, they've actually reached out to U.S. and Irish ambassadors over a potential ban on general aviation, including business flights at Dublin Airport, due to its passenger volume potentially exceeding its 2024 uh, cap, which is 32 million total passengers. Um, the Dublin Airport's authorities proposed ban aims to prevent surpassing this limit before plans to expand capacity to 40 million passengers per year are finalized, uh, which takes an average of two years to get that kind of policy change uh, pushed through. Uh, NBAA's Ed Boland warns that the ban could significantly impact Ireland's appeal for foreign investment and jeopardize jobs. Uh, while both NBAA and the Irish Business and General Aviation Association are hopeful that the passenger cap at Dublin will be raised to 40 millions. Uh, those groups have also suggested an alternative to allocate 20,000 of those passengers of the current 32 million passenger cap specifically to business aviation. According to Boland, he said that's a mere 0.0625% of the passenger limit. And he also noted that maintaining access to Ireland and the Dublin area for business aviation, which brings substantial economic and commercial benefits while still adhering to that 32 million 
passenger cap. Uh, this move uh, by Ireland actually mirrors broader uh, European trends. In May of 2023, the French government imposed a cap on aircraft flights between domestic destinations accessible within a 2.5 hour train ride um, with specific focus in their case on business aviation. A similar effort to ban business jets at Amsterdam Schiphol Airport was suspended last year. Now, we threw, I threw the story in there <clears throat> because it's important to understand, uh, as they are saying, the NBAA and the IGBAA, um, that this is the passengers that corporate travel uh, only makes up less than 1% of, of total passengers going in and out. But I, I would guarantee that they have worked out the numbers of economic investment in the country in Ireland and, and maybe even specifically around the Dublin area um, that is uh, much more advantageous to the economy of those specific uh, regions than um, having just passengers pass through the Dublin airport. Uh, so I think it's, again, kind of a self-marketing problem. I think uh, business aviation has this uh, air of luxury, which is true. However, the 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 capital investments in these in these countries and regions where these people are traveling to um, far outweighs, uh, you know, the possible, um, I guess, limitations imposed by policy re and regulations like this. So I don't know. Just uh, kind of another you know open plug for corporate aviation um, continuing to have access while, uh, you know, fighting off the, its its own stigma, I suppose. It's, uh, I guess it's a battle between uh, the airport wanting its revenue and the country or the government as a whole's revenue. You know, the uh, Dublin are looking at how many Toblerones they're going to sell, getting people through, whereas actually, you know, you might not sell as many Toblerones, but that, that private jet that had four business people on might do a deal worth billions, right? Billions, yeah. And and, and that's usually what it is. If you got if you got a Gulfstream or a Global Express landing in Dublin to do business, it's probably uh, probably worth millions and billions. Yeah, you yeah. got to sell one billion Toblerones. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, anyways, so uh, I think that uh, wraps us up for commercial this week, doesn't it? Yeah. How is life in the Hawker as we're on the subject of uh, the business flying? Uh, pretty slow, actually. Uh, slow enough that I've started branching out a little bit. And uh, our our full-time job is now turned into just kind of two to three days a month. Um, I think just the the family and the company have, have slowed their travel a little bit. So we've started branching out as a team, myself and, and uh, my co-captain, Tony, and we are marketing ourselves as a team here in the Charlotte area. There's plenty of hawkers. Um, we've started just kind of picking up some, uh, uh, I guess, relieving some of the other crews that are pretty busy for some of the companies in the area. So it's pretty nice to, to fly different airplanes, fly to different destinations. Um, I think last week I wasn't on the show because I was coming back from New Orleans. That was actually for a a uh, new part 91 hawker client that their crew was unavailable so we um we took over that trip for them it's pretty neat to, to fly to some new destinations yeah that'd be nice so before we go on to the military news um 
Last week we start or we opened up the book competition again, and uh, we had a book to give away, which uh, Nev has very kindly extended to next week. So you've got another week to enter the competition. The book we're giving away, I've actually got it here with me. For those of you who are in the uh, world of YouTube, you'll see there it's the private uh, or the private airplane passenger safety book. Uh, what you need to know. It's uh, by Jake O'Graybill and great little book hardback book as well and for those of you who do a lot of private flying it's a good little read this one i don't know whether you've seen that one armando it's quite uh, quite interesting to read this one but we are the question we asked uh, you and you still got another week to enter nev will be announcing the winner next week on the show so the question we asked you is uh, we all know the cessna 150 is one of the world's most popular training aircraft but what year did the Cessna 150 first fly? So the Cessna 150, popular training aircraft, but what year did the Cessna 150 first take to the skies? I was quite surprised, actually, when I found the answer to this. I didn't realise at all. But uh, get your answers in to podcast at plaintalkinguk.com send your answers in to us email us in you can also or send us a message as well via our whatsapp number if you want to send us your answers via whatsapp you can do that as well all the details will be at the end of the show uh, to be in with a chance of winning that book and as we said the names will be pulled out of the hat next week uh, by nev hopefully he'll be back with us on the show next week do you know the answer armando only because I looked it up after last ah, week's show. Okay. Did, were you surprised at the, the, the year? No, I wasn't. You know, I would talk about it, but it might give away too much. I The Cessna 150 specifically was meant to be like the flying car, right? It was There is even a Cessna 150 commuter. That was the designation. It wasn't a, a Skyhawk or anything like that. And it was meant for people to travel during the this age in aviation where it was first uh, produced it was meant for people to commute to work into the big city uh in their little cessna 150 as a little two-car sports car well, that's that's sporty but two-car car are you a fan of the aircraft itself cessna 150 oh yeah. my gosh yeah yeah that's oh, such a great i i would no matter what i fly i'm always comfortable to jump jump back into a cessna 150 or 152 uh, because it's just so simple it's just so simple and, and probably more capable than most people think you can i mean there's an aerobatic version of a of, of a cessna 150 yeah. yeah yeah what about you matt are you uh, well versed in the realms of the 150 yeah i did all my initial training on a 152 went to my first solo in 152 so yeah uh always enjoyed it so yeah even like armando said you know even things like you know it's got electric flaps on which you know pretty unheard of even for quite a while after the Cessna 150 came out so yeah that's yeah, good and a quick question before we move on to handing over the show to Armando high wing or low wing preferred, oh, good pref- question. preferred. what am I doing what do you prefer high wing or low wing when you were yeah. flying you know training or learning or 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 um general sort of family fun days out high wing or low wing it depends really if you're doing sightseeing white high wings much better the view is much better from a high wing aircraft um and they're much more more stable when they stall they stall much more predictably things like that um 
I'd say for training, I I found it very useful on the on a high wing. But then, I'd say looks wise, I prefer the look of a low wing aircraft or a biplane. But mm. uh, yeah, like I say, it depends what I was doing with it. For, certainly for sightseeing, the high wing's much better. Armando, what about you, Armando, uh, I prefer by a biplane. <laughs> <laughs> The best of both worlds. Why not just throw two wings on the airplane? Oh, excellent. Good choice there. And I take it well, everything's going well with the uh, the recent purchase, Armando. I love it. It's such a cool airplane. I can't wait for every single one of you guys on the call right now and everybody in the chat room to come to Charlotte and we'll take we'll take you for a ride because it's just such a cool feeling to uh, oh, wow. to jump into an open cockpit biplane. There we go. See, nice that's segue the offers of, there. The offers there yeah. to all you lovely listeners. Look, right, Armando. Time to hand things over to you. Yeah, yeah. Nice and segue. I'll throw it right. Nice segue <laughs> no onto cool-looking aircraft. Yeah, right. Um, but first, Carlos, you got to hit the button. Watch the one three five fifty angel sixteen three four zero. Okay. Uh, so, um, actually, Carlos, I'm just going to sit here and gawk at my screen, how beautiful this airplane is. And then I'm going to have you read the story while I continue to, to gawk and, and say how beautiful this airplane is. It is so stunning, isn't it? Yeah. Honestly, when I saw, when I saw this picture in the show notes, I, Stephen Ivy actually sent me this through as well this week. And, uh, yeah, but this story comes to us from the, uh, all the Gov and NASA and Lockheed Martin reveal the X 59 quiet supersonic aircraft. And I have to say, it just look, it looks like a rent, one of those rendered pictures that you'd see, you know, of a, something that's never been built and never will be built. Uh, NASA and Lockheed Martin have introduced the X-59 quiet supersonic aircraft designed to fly at speeds of 1.4 times the speed of sound while minimizing sonic booms, potentially influencing regulations that currently restrict supersonic flight over land. In its design, shaping and technologies will allow the aircraft to achieve these speeds while generating a quiet so quieter sonic thump the x-59 central to nasa's quest mission uh, will undergo a series of tests before making its inaugural flight later on in the year once nasa completes flight tests the agency will fly the aircraft over several to be selected cities across the u.s hopefully one will be charlotte for armando it will then be used to assess public perception of its acoustic impact in various u.s cities the data gathered will inform both the FAA and international bodies and the aircraft features a unique design with a long tapered nose and engine on top which along with other technological innovations contributes to its quieter sonic profile. The cockpit notably positioned mid-length without a forward window relies on external vision systems using high or using high resolution cameras feeding a 4k monitor in the cockpit for visibility. The Quest team also designed the aircraft with its engine mounted on top and gave it a smooth underside to help shock waves from merging behind the aircraft and causing that all important sonic boom so 
thoughts, Armando? Obviously, you'd like to fly um, one. That's a given. Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, shameless, not so shameless plug for the Airplane Geeks podcast. Uh, go to airplanegeeks.com or look them up on uh, your favorite podcatcher. Um, their episode 782 had two X-59 test pilots discussing this particular aircraft, the design, the technology, the role of the test pilots, and um, some of the challenges of flying supersonic aircraft. But um, for me, this might actually replace... Uh, in, in, in the question that we always ask of what aircraft would you fly give, if money was no object? <laughs> and this is probably like the closest thing that we have to, to Dark Star and Top Gun. So um, I would love to fly this thing. Although, you know, it's, a, it's just got the television screens on the front. You, you can only see out the sides. But I guess when you're, when you're going, you know, Mach 2, you can kind of just feel it, huh? Yeah, which, my hair on fire. Thanks, which John. It's all right, yeah. but what happens when those screens don't work? Uh, see, again, take it back to the roots of aviation. You have to when I land the biplane, I can't see out the front. I'm just kind of looking out the sides. So they're fine. If they're good pilots, they can they can fly. It. No problem. I'm, uh, I think Matt is just wishing that they'll get um, a passenger variant of this. It looks pretty cool, doesn't it? <laughs> it does look pretty cool. Yeah, I mean... I'm guessing, like you say, they're not seeing very much. Is that a camera on the top? Are they are the screens mm-hmm. showing a camera of the forward view? Yeah, they are. Yeah, we um, actually featured it on the show a couple months ago and had some pictures of the interior and uh, and their setup and their the synthetic. It's all synthetic vision um, with overlays with infrared, I believe, and some other um, you know instrumentation and telemetry right on a, a television screen up front. Nice. Yeah, it looks great, doesn't it? That nose is going to be pretty high off the ground in the flare, isn't it? Yeah, it's a hundred. This aircraft is a hundred feet long. Wow! Wow! Yeah. <laughs> um, right. Okay. Sorry, we all got distracted. <laughs> um, the next story. A uh, little bit of Ukraine news. We haven't talked about Ukraine very much, uh, but from the BBC.com as well as some other um, international media outlets out there, uh, Ukraine's military says that it shot down a Russian military spy plane over the Sea of Azov in what analysts are saying could be a pretty significant blow to Moscow's air power. Um, the An Army Chief General Valery Zaluzny uh, said that the Air Force had destroyed an A-50 long-range radar detection aircraft and an IL-22 uh, control aircraft. Um, the A-50 is kind of our version uh, or their version of our AWACS that it detects air defenses, coordinates targets for Russian aircraft. Now, Ukraine recently has struggled to make some any significant advances against the Russian forces, at least in the southeast of their country. Um, but uh, a briefing from the UK's Ministry of Defense uh, said that uh, Russia likely had about six operational A-50s. And of course, you know, these aircraft are very, very expensive. Nobody's been able to verify this attack. It's all just on on, on media. Um, it was published on Telegram and, and, and some other things. Um, but uh, as you guys can imagine, if it was, if it is true that they downed a, or sorry, that they destroyed an A-50 and and IL-22, which, by the way, the Russians are saying it was hit by friendly fire. Um, but uh, these aircraft, aircraft are what we call uh, a low-density, high-demand aircraft, which means there's not that many of them, and everybody wants the products that they produce. So even the loss of one of these uh, 
intelligence surveillance reconnaissance aircraft would be a pretty significant uh, uh, hit to to the Russian forces, uh, as it would be to any forces, right? As you guys know, in the UK, this would be the equivalent of taking down one of uh, an RC-135 or for us an AWACS or a JSTARS or something like that, where these aircraft are are very, very specialized in what they do, very good at what they do. Um, but not having one available creates a pretty significant gap on the on the battlefield. So um, I guess we will see. Maybe we'll find out if uh, these reports get verified or not, at least in public. Um, but as you can imagine, uh, the conflict still goes on in Ukraine. Mm. I forgot what the IL-22 looked like, so I just had a little look. It's not a small aircraft, is it? No, it's kind of a like a if a if a navy P three were to get stung mm. by a bee, so mm. it's kind of like a little little bulbous P three four engine turboprop. Um, they've been around for a long time, quite a bit. I, I think since the uh, shoot the fifties. I think mm. nineteen forty seven. I think the first flight was so. Um, and then the A fifty is a. It looks like a C seventeen type aircraft you know high mounted wings with four engines t-tail with a radar dome on top so yeah according to uh according to the amazing wikipedia on monday the illusion 22 first flew in 1947 yeah I'm, but you know that seems a long way ago but our b-52s were around since 1952 the i think the c-130 has been around since the early 50s the mm. 707 right the our all our 135s have been around since the early 50s so not uh not too far off of our own uh, at least in the u.s reconnaissance aircraft ages now matt you've so. got the next one i certainly have this one comes from routers.com and it's french mirage aircraft may reinforce ukrainian air force commander says Ukraine will not be able to give up Soviet aircraft in favor of Western ones overnight, and the French military jets may coexist on Ukrainian airfields with American and Soviet ones, the head of the Ukrainian Air Force said on Sunday. Since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine began in February 2022, Kiev has pressed Western allies to supply increasingly sophisticated arms and ammunition, including armoured vehicles, tanks, long-range missiles and US-made F-16 fighters. The first F-16 jets are expected to arrive in Ukraine later in 2024, although the impact on the war could be limited by the strength of Russia's air force. Ukraine's ground forces commander said on Friday that Kiev needed more military aircraft for its war efforts, such as the USA A-10 Thunderbolt II attack jets to support infantry and planes that could fire long-range cruise missiles. The commander of the Ukrainian Air Force, Mykola Oleshkuk, says that not only American A-10s but also French Dassault Mirages may come into service in Ukraine. Uh, Oleschuk was quoted on Telegram stating, along with F-16s, MiG-29s, they will also operate in the sky and it's possible that the combat capabilities of the Su-24M bombers will be enhanced by the Mirage 2000D and the Su-25 attack aircraft will be strengthened by A-10 Thunderbolt 2s. Mirage 2000 is a French multi-role single-engine fourth-generation fighter jet. 
The priority today, of course, is the F-16 for which Ukrainian pilots are already being retrained. However, our experts are also studying other opportunities to increase the combat potential of aviation in general, Alestruk said. So, Armando, with your background and knowledge, what are your thoughts on on this one? Is that what's it like for them as a military having so so many and so so many different, very different concept types of fighter aircraft? Uh, under normal circumstances, I, I would say that it would be very challenging. But uh, given the situation, given the resolve of the country and its armed forces, I think, um, as we've seen in almost every conflict, uh, war leads to innovation and it leads to improvisation. And I think that uh, the Ukrainians would probably be able to fly these aircraft and, and fly them well. Uh, you know, even World War II, there were so many uh, examples of, of low-time pilots jumping into aircraft they had very little experience on and being incredibly successful. So I think just having the capabilities, as long kind of what you're saying, Matt, as long as it's backed up by by a logistical chain, right, where now you need yeah, not just pilots. What, you, that's more what I meant, sorry, from like not the pilot's perspective, but from an entire military logistics point of view operating multiple different types is that do you think that would be difficult or is it yeah it does get very challenging because not you have to train your engineers and your mechanics you need to have a parts supply um, running them isn't cheap by any means uh, it, it, it is probably more beneficial for them to run F-16s and Mirages for parts availability than, than say, an SC-25, right? Where, mm. well, obviously the Russians are not, they're not going to give them new parts for, for that aircraft. So um, I think transitioning to these kinds of aircraft that are um, almost their, their Western twin, right? So the A-10 and the SC-25 have almost identical capabilities, and identical roles, but switching to something that does at least have some kind of logistical uh, back chain would be advantageous to them. Yeah, Mirage 2000 first introduced uh, into service back in uh, the late 70s, 78. 78? yeah. But Yeah, um, but, uh, you know, as, as attrition happens also, any any backfilling of these these capabilities is important um, for them to continue on. Mind you, the F-16 um, has been going since 1974, so... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the theme in military is there's a lot of platforms. The F-15, they say, is going to continue on for another probably 25, 30 years. Wow. I mean, there's new ones being produced off the line right now, and it's you know right around the same time frame or mid-70s. Um, so uh, kind of speaking of, of fighter jets and um, the last story that we have for the military is from time.com, uh, kind of an evolving situation out there uh, in Yemen. Uh, but the Houthi rebels fired an anti-ship cruise missile uh, towards an American destroyer in the Red Sea last week. But a U.S. fighter jet actually shot down the missile in this sort of latest attack and latest escalation of this uh, conflict going on in the in these global shipping lanes uh, para in parallel with with the Israel uh, Hamas war that's going on in the Gaza Strip 
Um, the uh, This particular attack marks the first time that the U.S. acknowledged fire by the Houthis since the U.S. and its allied nations um, began some strikes last weekend on these rebel uh, compounds uh, following some weeks of assaults on, on ships and shipping in the Red Sea. Um, the Houthis have targeted this crucial corridor that links uh, Asian and, and Mideast energy and cargo shipments to the Suez Canal. Um, I think I read somewhere that it's some uh, 15%, or actually it was uh, Anthony Blinken that said some 15% of the world's trade goes through this this region. Um, therefore, it is uh, very important that the shipping lanes are secured. Um, and, you know, I don't have a story on it, but just a couple of days ago, there were two U.S. Navy SEALs that are still missing. Um, they intercepted a ship that had Iranian-produced missile parts that were going to the Houthis. So um, for me, I think this is uh, just a continued escalation of, a, of a yet another conflict that's kind of associated. Uh, but the, and this, this is really important for, um, to secure global commerce um, in, in that particular area. And I, I don't see it getting any better in the next year or so. So I, I have a feeling that we're going to start seeing some more stories come out of uh, Yemen and, and Somalia and, and that whole region. Hmm. Interesting. But, uh, yeah, I thought it was interesting that a, hmm. that a, an aircraft, I don't know which aircraft it was, but a U.S. aircraft shot down a cruise missile. That's kind of hmm. a, a unique air-to-air kill. I think stories like this show that actually it sort of backs up the need that we do need these air forces and military. It's not just for if we are in a war or if we are attacked, it's actually for things like protecting. I mean, uh, it doesn't have to be a military destroyer that's attacked. You know, there's been attacks on, as you say, on cargo and things like that. So protection comes in all sorts of forms that's required. Yeah. And it's the reason the Navy still exists, to be honest. I mean, they have a pretty limited ship to shore capability compared to all the other services. But um, I don't I don't think most people realize how important shipping lanes are to global commerce. Um, but everything. Yeah, so, I mean, think about when that um, I was going to say, think about when that uh, ship or container got uh, stuck in the Suez Canal, it caused uh supply chain problems for months globally didn't it just from from the the blockage yeah and if if companies have to start going around the, the entire region then that costs more logistically which means the price of goods will continue to go up um yeah not to mention it it empowers these um terrorist organizations so sorry you said something carlos no i was just saying a lot of you know you see a lot of things on on the news and stuff now and even you know we've got a a new um drama series that's being shown on tv at the minute obviously fictional but it's based around the use of uavs you know fully armed uavs being used in in combat yeah that always makes me giggle because every time they say it's a drone attack there's usually a manned aircraft somewhere nearby yeah yeah and on the subject of drones uh don't forget me and uh nev and matt as well haven't we our guest tonight matt we're off to dublin aren't we in march 
uh, for the drone summit at the RDS Arena in Dublin. So if any, if any of our listeners are in and around the Dublin area uh, in March, beginning of March, 1st and 2nd of March, let us know. We'd like to have a meet. We're going to have a little uh, get-together uh, in Dublin while we're there. We're there for two days, aren't we, Matt, covering the drone summit there. Yeah. And uh, we're going to be taking a look at some uh, rather interesting tech, I reckon, aren't we? Yeah, definitely. And uh, if any of your listeners are on Armando's side of the pond, I'm going to be in Vegas towards the end of this month. So 31st till the uh, Jan to the 6th of Feb. So if any of the listeners are in that area and fancy catching up, get in contact either through my podcast and that or through PTUK. Uh, it'd be great to see some people over there as well. Is that work or, or pleasure, Matt? <laughs> pleasure this time oh. yeah <laughs> and who's the chosen carrier of choice for uh, uh it's the uh the nev the oh Nev's, uh, yeah oh you'll be uh, oh nev will be in we are, yeah i'm yeah. Guess, guessing you'll be in uh, obviously business class unfortunately not no <laughs> oh no i don't quite have the status of nev so uh i'll be uh i'm in whatever ba called premium oh that is. the uh yes World Traveller Plus, whatever, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, but it was an extra, I don't know, one way, I think, is extra five grand or something (sighs) to to go business. And I was like, nah, it's okay. Yeah. Ouch. Ouch. Yeah, so slumming it in the middle, not down the back, but yeah. Well, you never know. Armando might be able to fly in and see you while you're there. Yeah. I don't think, I think we've checked, Armando. You're not in Vegas at the end of the month, are you? I think you should suggest suggest to the owners that uh, it's really good to go to Vegas this time of year. <laughs> we we actually do go to Vegas once or twice a year. It just doesn't happen to be. Um, and, and and funny funny about this because as Matt is coming to the U.S. and going to Vegas, I'm in 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 the middle of planning our U.K. trip, which involves my family going over to Casa Clutterbuck. Um, so we'll be in Cambridge for a couple of days and hanging out with them. Uh, you know, his girls and, and Maddie are friends. And um, plus we've got, you know, more friends that will probably come out. So it's funny actually, because um, when we was at yours a couple of years ago, uh, Maddie left her drinks water bottle in our <laughs> car and uh, they've kept it all this time. And when I said, you guys are coming over to stay, the first thing they said was like, we can give Maddie her water bottle. <laughs> well, all right. <laughs> You know, it's funny how kids do that, right? They, as long as they get a purpose, that they're, they're going to remember yeah. it forever. We yeah. I'd forgotten all about it, but they like, ran and got it out of the back of the cupboard in the kitchen where they've been keeping this Maddie's water bottle. You, you should send me a picture of which one it is, because yeah, I know yeah. All her it's an Under Armour one, I think. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that's what the Carlos. I know you're going to ask, but that's what we're doing is just kind of planning our UK trip. I think we're, you know, we'll be in Cambridge those couple of days. I want to show the girls uh, Barry St Edmunds where I lived in sort of East Anglia, which I, despite whatever you guys say, I think is beautiful. Um, And, uh, and I think we're going to be in the Cotswolds for a few days before, before Cambridge, um, just to do some outdoorsy type stuff. And um, us Americans are completely infatuated with a great British baking show or bake off. Um, So we're going to do a, a a baking adventure experience, not adventure, I guess, but a baking experience in the Cotswolds. Um, so the whole family, we're going to go bake some breads and make some macarons and uh, go some hikes, go down to Oxford. We'll probably meet up with Nev in Oxford. Um, yeah, it'll be nice. 
sort of nine days in the UK that we're looking forward to. Excellent. <clears throat> Excellent. It'll be good to see you as well, Amanda. Looking forward to that as very much indeed. But uh, Matt, what's going on in the world of you? What you got planned for uh, for the next week? Anything, anything exciting? Um, well, I've been uh, teaching the last couple of weeks in the winter on part-time. So I've spent the last couple of weeks teaching, uh, doing some training on the Airbus. And then is that in a sim or is that uh, fixed base or bit of both? Yeah. Bit of both. Um, I do the ground school as well, so I've been doing some uh, tight rating ground school, the technical stuff for the A320, practicing procedures in the procedure training and some sim stuff. Uh, I've got a command preparation course that I'm doing uh, next week, so I do a lot of command preparation for people that are going from their commands, any airline, but A320 based. So I've got that coming up, which I always enjoy. That's always a good day, all done on Zoom. Um, last one I did uh, at the beginning of this month, I think we had people from uh, Hong Kong, Australia, UK, um, all over Europe and stuff. So it's really good. You get a nice mix of experience. And I really like that because, you know, as I'm sure Amanda will tell you, even when you're training, you learn a lot. You know, hearing how the culture is in out in the Middle and Far East and Australasia, and everyone has different experiences. It's always really good. So I always really enjoy those preparing people for their commands to become a captain. <laughs> oh yeah, excellent. So you're not off to any hot destinations then with the airline that you fly for? Um, I've got some Egyptian stuff coming up. Oh, good. So good. yeah, bit of Egyptian. No, nothing too cold. I think I'm generally going south. Um, I used to do a lot of Keflavik's that we talked about earlier. That seemed to be my route. I was put on them. I did three in a week in once, three in three days. Mm. Um, but this winter, not so much. I'm not doing the Kef so much this year. I seem to be doing what Armando would call the snowbird routes. So, Excellent. Yeah. And and passenger number wise, before we uh, wrap up the show, Matt, would you say things are starting to get bit or busier now, or are, have they been busy for a long while? What since COVID? Numbers? Yeah. Are oh, we... yeah, they recovered a long time ago. Yeah, I think yeah. Yeah, yeah you're yeah. seeing full fly. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had a very nice conversation this afternoon with uh, Paul Papadimitru from the Layovers podcast. Obviously, um, some of you listeners know that we're off to Geneva at the beginning of next month uh, in February with the BA boys, as uh, Nev will be pleased to hear. But had a good chat with Paul this afternoon. And uh, honestly, that guy is, is he's like a walking, talking encyclopedia of Geneva. He knows everything there is to know about there. And he also said it's quite a nice airport there as well, so I'm looking forward to that. And also, obviously, flying on the 321 Neo as well, which is what, hopefully, it says on the uh, on the booking thing that it's going to be a 321 Neo. So, fingers crossed, that'll, that'll stay the same. Because I've yet to uh, sample the 321 Neo, Matt. Have you, have you been on a 320 Neo? Yes. Okay. Same but longer. Same but longer, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unless you're sitting at the back, it'll look the same. Look the same, exactly. <laughs> uh, so that is it. We're going to sp- wrap up the show then. So social media links, in case you didn't already know uh, where we were, don't forget to give us a look on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. Search for Plain Talking UK on there as well. Uh, also, 
uh, don't forget to give us an email if you want to uh, send us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. So you can send that into our email address, podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. Also, the answers for the competition to win this book, you can send those into the email as well. I shall pop this on our socials as well with a question for those of you who might have missed a question. Uh, so you can enter that draw to win that book next week. Uh, we're on YouTube as well, don't forget. Just look for us, Plain Talking UK, and also our website, all the w's.plaintalkinguk.com is where you can find out more about us what we are who we are what we look like although john's picture is rather interesting if you've not seen the website check out john's picture he looks stunning uh you can find out more about patreon if you want to become a patron of the show and also the links to donate to the show as well because it all helps to push the content each week that we do on the show if you want to send us a picture in to go on the green screen behind here this is in the i'm in the master suite studio this week in uh, in the ptk master suite studio uh you can send us a picture in to plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six is that whatsapp number and you can pop a picture on there and we can have that on the green screens behind me when i'm back at home in my uh, studio as well Plus, you can send your feedback in there as well. We'd love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to talk about on the show or look into uh, uh, in, a, in the world of aviation, let us know. Perhaps there's something that you think that Armando would be a legend answering, which we all know that he would answer any questions about anything. And that is about it for the episode this week, 486. Big thanks to everyone who joined us in the YouTube chat room this evening, for all the family members in there for tuning in to, uh, to night on our new day which is obviously wednesdays now we are live wednesday nights seven o'clock here on youtube gonna say thanks to matt for joining us tonight big thanks to you matt really appreciate you coming on tonight and taking time out of your wednesday evening to join us no worries you're always welcome and uh, i had a great time being on as always so thanks for inviting me excellent and armando thanks for joining us as well from across the pond always good to have you on board are you, are you with us next uh, next wednesday armando Oh, putting me on the spot. I can't remember. <gasps> no, I'll be flying. I'll be in uh, Rochester, Minnesota next week. Oh, Wednesday. no. But also, just for just for Lee in the chat room, I actually love the North. Uh, when I lived in the UK and I had family visit, I would always tell them, we're going to do one day in London and the South. And then the rest of the time, we're going to, we, I would start in York because I love York. I think York is beautiful, right? And then we would go north from there. So I actually am partial to, uh, well, especially when people are visiting, to take them to the to the north of England. But it's just inconvenient when you only have when you only have nine days. You really need like a whole month to visit the UK. And you're always welcome over here, Armando. As you one day when I, yeah. when I when I retire, retire like actually retire, I think I, I probably will come over there for a couple of months as long as the uh, the border police will let me stay over there <laughs> so that's it for the show this week armando i'm going to leave you to say goodbye to everyone on the live show this week it's always a pleasure to have matt on and uh we can nerd out over um the technical aspects of airplanes big chat room today loved everybody in the chat room and uh thanks carlos thanks john thanks nick thanks nev and of course matt uh, for putting the show together every week. Everybody have a great rest of the week. Bye.